Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Cole McRae, the undergraduate scholar for the Gordney Institute. We have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gordney Institute and the Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We also have with us Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gordney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right, heck of a first time intro there, Cole, good job. Thank All you. right, so today <clears throat> we thought we'd talk about intellectual property. So economists are always big on property rights and want to have those, oh, well-defined uh, for the gains from trade that we that we cheerlead all the time. Having well-defined property rights helps things work a little more efficiently. And a lot of times in life, problems occur when there's not well-defined property rights. If you go back and think about conflicts, possibly even with your spouse or with friends and family or other areas, co-workers at your job, Times it can be property rights that aren't well defined. And so intellectual property is even more challenging because we don't have something physical to grab onto. And so, Justin, what were you thinking in bringing this up this topic? Well, I think it's a topic that the three of us disagree on. <laughs> and maybe we all disagree with each other. Maybe some of us agree with each other more. But I personally am opposed to patents as intellectual property. And I'll outline a couple of reasons why. So patents are ownership in ideal objects. That is, if you patent a process or if you patent like um, a medicine or something like that, like a, a medical formula, then nobody else is allowed to sell anything with that formula for a given number of years. Um, and the usual justification for this is it's often given in terms of like the medical industry. They say like, well, this um, patent protection is the reward we give to companies for making the kind of research investment that you need to make to make discoveries. So uh, the state will grant you a monopoly on this product um, for a given amount of time to allow you to kind of recoup. Um, your investment uh, in terms of research or something like that. Um, does that sound fair? Yeah, stated? yeah, that's fair. Okay. So the argument against intellectual property is, I think, twofold. The first is that the reason ownership of private property makes sense is that private property we usually think of as physical, like uh, you own your car, you own a, uh, your plot of land, etc. And um, if you own your car, that means you can do what you want with your car. And if you own your land, you can do what you want with your land. This is what ownership is. And ownership is actually pretty much in the simple cases like this, it's, it's binary, right? You either own it or you don't. And, you know, things get really tangled up with things like, you know, uh, zoning laws, where it seems like, oh, well, I thought I owned this property. Am I not allowed to do X on this property. So yes, even physical property can get uh, tangled up in things like this. But in the purest case, ownership is binary. You either own something or you don't. And if you own it, you have control over it. The problem with 
intellectual property is that it's, it's ownership in ideal or abstract objects. And by definition, IP prevents people from doing things with their physical property that they own. If you patent a certain kind of mousetrap, and I have the material to make that kind of mousetrap, I can't uh, make and sell that kind of mousetrap. Does this make sense? So the libertarian argument against IP is something like IP actually requires a giant state apparatus in order to operate. It requires that we have a police force making sure that nobody is doing with their physical property um, something to violate your prior claim on it. They can't shape their own, put their own property into different shapes if you have previously said, I'm the inventor of this shape and I own this shape. Um, So that's one argument against intellectual property is that it necessarily restricts ownership of physical property. A second argument against private property says, well, one of the reasons that we want to have private property in the physical realm is that physical property is scarce. And we want um, people to be as productive as possible with their scarce physical property because we want wealth to increase. We know that letting people have control over their physical private property is one of the best ways to get people to trade um, and increase productivity, et cetera. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm trying to... Think of when the appropriate time to jump in. So keep going. The problem uh, on this view is that ideal objects are not scarce. If the grounds for uh, having property be private in the physical sense is that physical property is scarce, um, you know, if you are farming your acre, I can't also farm that same acre, right? Um, this seems to fall apart when we are dealing with ideal objects. Um, your making your mousetraps a certain way uh, doesn't prevent me from making a mousetrap that same way. We know that ideal objects can be economically beneficial, but they don't appear to be scarce in the purely economic sense. Um, so that's a twofold argument. Uh, that, and most of this comes for readers from Stefan, Stefan Kinsella. Um, who was with the Mises Institute for a long time. I don't know if he still is, but he had a short pamphlet called Against Intellectual Property. He is an IP lawyer. And uh, so his claim is that you know, these two arguments feature very heavily in that. Um, oh, I'm not sure where to begin exactly. So I guess I'll just say a couple things. So when you say it requires a state or a large state apparatus, I don't think it would a have to be the state. It could be some sort of voluntary association, a community, whatever might ultimately get to the state level. But I don't think that's anything different than what we have with physical property of police that are protecting your physical property. If somebody harms you, you can go to court. And so I'm not I'm not sure. Maybe you can expand on that. The difference between the state apparatus for intellectual property as opposed to physical property. It seems like it requires a more invasive version of the state, right? Because of the, like with your mousetrap example, that you're, it's more invasive because you're limiting physical uses of property by granting intellectual property rights? Yes, it increases the amount of legal claims that uh, people can have against one another. And 
it makes it the case that those claims are often requires pretty invasive procedures to figure out whether someone is uh, violating. Right. Yeah. There's a lawsuits and well, legal expenses. Or just monitoring. Like think of if we, if yeah. what, what would we have to do to perfectly police like intellectual property over drugs? Like if I, you know, could make an antibiotic myself, even though most antibiotics are out public, but let's say it wasn't at the time a, a certain new antibiotic and, you know, Justin came over to my house and I gave him some and I was, you know, in my basement, I made it. What would it take to stop that? Well, it would take like a camera in my basement, basically, to see that from happening now. What would it take to stop a burglar? Well, all it takes is a wall, right? You know, a defense force or something. So it's a little less invasive in like a practical sense, though. I, I will agree with Russ and I think Justin, you probably even agree. This is one of the weaker arguments for IP because actually like like communists will use this argument for all property, like frequently. They'll say my evidence of the fact that, you know, capitalism is bad is that the only times we've ever had like big capitalist systems where we own property, we've also had big states to enforce that. And we can't have non-state enforcement of property, I believe, but at least for an empirical scale argument, that is basically true. That doesn't mean it has to be true, but it is basically true that every society with very valuable property has also had a state defending that property. It doesn't have to be that way, but it has been historically. So Yeah, this is kind of an inside baseball argument for libertarians, yeah. right? It's not going to work on anyone else. Yeah, Because if true. you describe this to anybody else, they're going to say, <laughs> you know what else requires the state? everything yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's not like we didn't have a state before ip laws yeah one one of the things i wanted to i'll start off listeners by saying i think i basically agree with this argument though i've gotten like more in the weeds about it the way i've been thinking about it lately and so I'm, i'm gonna tackle justin but not from the usual i mean the usual things are things you've already addressed like someone will say well no one would make life saving drugs if not for intellectual property, because as soon as you make it, it'd be very easy to replicate. Drugs are notoriously cheap to replicate. And so you spend all the upfront costs, you get none of the profit. So it's never worth it to spend the upfront costs. That's one argument. I would tend to bite that bullet actually and say, yeah, that like if you lower the benefit of doing something, people are going to do it less. Now you would have probably more spin-offs and other things that would displace that. And so if people are more free to experiment with the stuff that's already out there, uh, you might have more life-saving drugs based on spin-off creations of currently patented drugs, which you're not allowed to make right now because you maybe have to violate patent law to do it. So maybe those benefits outweigh the cost. I mean, that's one possibility. Um, but my, so I kind of want to challenge you on a weird different level than uh, I think listeners will want to hear the challenge on. So sorry, listeners. But I, first off, I want to challenge this idea of ownership being binary uh, and then I do want to reaffirm it, that it is in some sense. So one thing that really surprised me was Armin Alshin's argument about ownership that it's kind of like a bundle of sticks. And this is maybe a good way to describe ownership is that economic ownership, uh, you know, you can think of like, uh, what is it, Planet of the Apes, where they do that, we're stronger together, a bundle of sticks, which is that uh, you can own something in the sense that you can use it physically. And I think that's what Justin's talking about, by the way, is uh, sometimes we call this domain, like the ability to physically use something. And that always exists. Someone always has use rights over something as long as it's property. If it's like a star, sure, we don't have that. But anything that's property, somebody has your use rights over. And you can't remove them. They can't be non-existent so long as it remains property. There are aspects of property that can go away, though, attributes. So the right to sell something we generally think of as part of your property rights. But we could make it illegal to sell things successfully. In other words, we could totally remove that aspect or that attribute of property. 
uh, and the Soviet Union, they did this with capital goods. Now, capital goods were still used, so they still had that aspect of control rights, but they couldn't be bought and sold. And so that plank of ownership was removed. The last plank of ownership is to re- retrieve some stream of income from something. And, you know, that's like if you have an apartment, you don't want to sell it, but you want to rent it out to someone, that's the stream of income. And that can also be foregone. But I agree with Justin in, in that we cannot forego use rights. So long as something is property, someone has use rights over it, no matter what law says otherwise. So even, even in capitalist countries, you can't sell your organs. Right. Yeah. That, that's, that's what I was getting. Yeah. At. Yeah. Well, Justin, was, I, I, I thought you were trying to <laughs> get me or something. Okay, now, that somebody still has the organs and uses the organs and you can't take those away. I mean, even if someone took them out and threw them into the ground, they're using them and they'll deteriorate and get destroyed. But someone has used them is the point. And so until something no longer exists, it gets used. But I will say this does uh, kind of maybe change things in a certain sense, maybe not for a philosopher, but uh for the this idea of ideal and abstract versus concrete once you think about this thi- things this way actually all ownership sort of becomes this physical thing about kind of what you can do with your resources but also what you can do with yourself right and so ip is not so much a claim of ownership over particular resources it's a claim of ownership over like what you're physically allowed to do and so it, You could say it's like categorical or abstract, or you could say it's concrete about like a particular set of actions, a particular set of resources. And in that sense, it becomes a little bit less differentiated or less clear. Yeah. And I think um, one of the points Kinsella makes is that if you grant ideal ideal property, your claim to ideal property places... Uh, makes an enormous amount of claims on other people at the mm-hmm. same time in a way that's different than your claim of physical property. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Like if you could somehow count them all, yeah, I think I I don't have any quibbles with that. So, all right. Well, that looks like a good spot for a break. When we come back, I, I don't think we really touched on the kind of the nature of the physical property versus the intellectual property. So I want to talk about that a little bit more and expand on it. And we'll be back in just a bit. Ottawa University has an exciting new major, PPE, which stands for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. Each of these fields is interesting in their own right, but they intersect in ways that are important to understand, both individually and for your community. If you find philosophy fascinating but want to make sure that your study of the subject is practical, if you enjoy economic analysis but want to see how economic laws interact with moral principles, if you are interested in politics but want to explore how economic and ethical realities constrain our political choices, you should consider the PPE program at Ottawa University. This spring, Ottawa University is organizing a PPE League competition of politics, philosophy, and economics. Students in this competition will compete leveraging the ideas of philosophy, politics, and economics in various events. If you're a professor or an advisor of college students and you're interested in your school competing in PPE League this spring, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. By 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. We have some great programming going on for high school students. We have an online microeconomics class. Yes, you can earn college credit for $200 by taking an online class. It's affordable, flexible, layered with support. Our new online micro is optimized for you. If you'd like to consider some events for your high school students or that class, please contact Justin, Peter, or Russ today. All right, we're back. And I 
I couldn't help but start to think about the characteristics of private goods versus like what we call public goods in economics. And so part of what's going on here with uh, intellectual property is that um, it's potentially non-rival and non-excludable to a certain extent. So non-rivalry means uh, more than one person can enjoy it at exactly the same time. So if somebody comes up with a good idea or process or whatever it is that uh, can be protected by a patent, that's part of the um, uh, problem, I guess. Problem and benefit at the same time is that multiple people can enjoy that good at the same time, whatever it is. The idea of non-excludability is that it's hard to keep people who aren't paying for it from using it. And um, so globally, uh, we have lots of problems with intellectual property of copycats in other countries who aren't under our United States law. They can copy, reverse engineer, use the materials. So I guess maybe to Justin's point, to use that mousetrap, you just got to leave the country and you can go <laughs> copy the mousetrap with your property. But you can't do that in the United States. So, so... Part of this, I'm still a supporter, I think, of uh, patents. I haven't been convinced yet. I'm not sure the length of it. I believe it's 17 years. Uh, you know, where did that number come from? Who knows uh, whether that's enough time to, to recoup whatever uh, potential money the, the person, is, if that's enough incentive for them to uh, innovate, or maybe they don't need that much incentive and the world would be a better place. It'd be less costly if the patent time was only 10 years or something. But I think it comes back to this non-rivalry uh, aspect that is important to extend a period of time because something like intellectual property can be replicated so fast. Uh, literally, uh, texting or our communications today can make it be replicated very quickly. And so I think to keep people incentivized uh, I think Peter was too strong, and I, don't, I think you maybe backed up even when you said it, but, you know, no one would make anything. Um, I think there would be, you know, some people doing it for pride purposes or otherwise, but the whole point is that at the margin, we've got yes. these companies uh, continuing to have a profit incentive to spend millions of dollars uh, to try to find something, and, and it might be a thousand trials that are very expensive, and only one of them hits out of the thousand, and they have uh, thousands of dead ends that go nowhere just on the hopes that um, they'll be able to um, recoup uh, some of those losses in addition to whatever was spent on the on the new intellectual property. So that's kind of where I'm coming at for starters, I guess. Yeah, so that's kind of the utilitarian argument for private property. And I think that if well, here, here's the one disagreement I'll put out, Russ, because I actually think if your argument for you for intellectual property is that I want there to be more inventions and, you know, more pharmaceutical products, and there will be less if there is intellectual property, uh, or if there's not, if it's it's yeah, if it's removed. Uh, I think to some extent that, that like, it's a good argument. Like, if, that, if that's what you want, if you want more inventions, and you think there will be less inventions without it, uh, in some ways, that becomes a, a difficult, but here's a possible rebuttal. So I mentioned things like spinoffs, Oftentimes, things are improved and changed in like really slight ways uh, that like the physical change is not much, but like the effects could be a lot. And so like maybe you can find a way to make a drug like 30 times more effective, but you have to utilize the IP of someone else first. And so when you levy IP things, one thing that you have to accept, like this is the bullet that you would have to bite, is that you might encourage more initial innovations, but you're going to discourage at least a set of spin-off innovations, which would exist absent 
uh, IP. So again, you lose the one on the ones on the margin. If you get rid of IP laws, you lose those things that are marginally profitable, but you actually gain all of the inframarginal things, all of the spinoff inventions from those, you gain them. And which of those two uh, invention sets is larger in value for society? I actually don't think it's determinate. I don't think there's a clear way to even sort that out. It's It's hard to think about. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think that when we make this kind of argument that, oh, well, you know, drugs wouldn't be developed, I think we're committing the Bastiat policy fallacy of not looking at what we don't see, right? Um, yeah. And one of the things that we don't see is what Peter's talking about with the mm -hmm. um, possible uh, combinations that an IP-free world uh, would allow us to do. But one thing that we're seeing and ignoring in our current world is the amount of funds that go into drug development and IP litigation. And it's enormous now. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, It structures incentives such that firms are always trying to get something new and patentable rather than doing the kind of thing like improving on somebody right. else's property. Yeah, that's a good point. So um, you can look at like diabetes. I know we talked about insulin in here before, but um, Currently in the US, diabetics who are both type one and type two receive the same kind right. of insulin and it's under patent and it's, I think it's synthetic insulin. Now, people with type two di diabetes would do just as fine uh, and do exactly as well on a type of insulin that isn't under patent and is at least 10 times cheaper, but it doesn't get prescribed because standard of care yeah. is the uh, patented version. And so, it we IP not only uh, involves this amount of resources, but it it incentivizes firms into patent chasing um, and uh, into um, you know uh, the reason we don't give type two diabetics the other type of insulin is just because the industry's been captured, right? Sure. Um, once, once you get yeah. the regulation such that you can uh, have standard of care be your expensive thing for 17 years, then that's what you do. Yeah, you're, you're starting to make the case that I was going to argue against myself with and that I think today looks much different than it did 100 or 200 years ago, as it might turn out. I just looked ahead to Google it, but 1790 is when George Washington signed the first patent. And I think it's kind of a rich man's luxury at this point. And like you say, the lobbyists and the attorneys and all of that. And, and I'd also comment, we do have a very healthy nonprofit sector and we're a rich country. And so people would probably still have incentive to save humanity all on their own without, without the profit. And, and it, you bring in the, all the legal costs and all of that wrapped up into it. Yeah. I might be starting to be convinced. Yeah. And so I actually think like one of the. Well, I'm, I'm being convinced from practical point sure. of view, by yeah. the way, too. Yeah. That I think these other things are maybe at today's day and age different than in the 1800s, where maybe it was more necessary then. Yeah. Here, here's maybe like we could imagine, and I don't like this arrangement either because I don't like when the government does anything almost, but like an alternative <laughs> government arrangement that would be better that's been proposed a lot is things like prizes. And so instead of having uh, patents for the first movers, uh, you have some sort of prize for the first person who develops a drug that lowers cancer fatality by 10% or something. Like you'd have to be pretty specific and you can never do this perfectly. So yeah, it's a flawed system. But if you basically put bounties out there for different discoveries, you should be able in theory to set the bounty high enough such that you have the same amount of innovation. And then you also don't have the problem anymore of having to keep that 
technology under lock and intellectual technology under lock and key for decades afterwards to reap the reward because you give them all the reward up front, then it's anybody's game. It's fair game stuff. So prizes are frequently an alternative proposal. So we can look at like two industries. One is like the food and beverage industry, right? Uh, Nobody patents their cocktail recipe, right? (laughs) But uh, we have an enormous amount of uh, creative cocktail culture in the United States, precisely because everybody can steal from everybody and does all the time, right? (laughs) Uh, Same thing with food. Um, Or look at what happened in the music industry in the last 30 years. Mm. Um, When Napster got on the scene, you know, and Metallica threw their little hissy fit, uh, the whole claim was that nobody's going to make music anymore if you can uh, copy and share it freely. What happened was, no, it just turns out that, you know, popular acts have to tour more because they have to make more money from touring. And by the way, uh, people still do want to buy, uh, you know, a record or whatever yep. from you know those sales they went down but they weren't completely evaporated people still buy name brand advil even though the kroger brand of uh, ibuprofen's right next to it don't you think that argument even is is a function of our opulence for lack of a better word but a function of our wealth and our our which riches that you know back in the metallica day or let's say go back further to the 60s or 70s I'm a talented artist and gosh, it'd be great to break into this industry, but I got to support my family. I got to go to work. And so with today's technology, innovation and wealth that surrounds us, we're more able to make that music happen because it doesn't, our our food on our table doesn't depend on it. Whereas I think in the past, we maybe wanted to have those rights protected a little bit more so that people take that risk. I don't think that makes a sense in like the Metallica days. Well, maybe, yeah. That's if like, you go back, I went back to the 60s. If you go back to a time when it would make sense, then I don't think it holds. Musical acts that were stealing, with each other, stealing from each other all throughout, you know, up until like the RAAA. Uh, that's what musical acts did. Theater acts did this too, right? They just stole each other's songs. And it was kind of more like um, songs went, you know, different musical acts would cover different versions of early blues songs. And it, I think that was more musically vibrant. It was more akin to our cocktail culture today where everybody's riffing on each other. Um, I, I did want to. So my basic idea here when it comes to Russ's objection is I think that you can't very easily make a utilitarian case that's definitive in either direction. That, that's my opinion. It's like, how do we compare all of the in- inventions that would have happened if not for IP against all the inventions that wouldn't happen if right. we didn't have, like you're doing two counterfactuals against each other. It becomes very difficult. <laughs> I, But I, I think it's important still. And so I, I like the conversation. One other uh, thing, though, and Justin and Russ, it's funny that you thought of this, too. I wrote down rivalry and excludability here. Justin had this comment, which I don't think is exactly wrong, but it's like weird how economists talk about things that physical property is scarce, whereas like intellectual property isn't. And at least the way that we've talked about it since, I think a closer word of what we're talking about is rival, right? That physical property tends to be rival and intellectual property tends to be non-rival. And rivalry is when your use of something ruins someone else's use of that thing at least yeah at least to some degree maybe not 100 food is the most rival good if you eat it someone else can't eat it at the same time but yeah intellectual properties if i make a drugs it's not like someone else can also make the same drug without so the intellectual property is completely non-rival but there's other non-rival goods in the economy i think of sunlight as like the classic non-rival good to a certain extent 
until it's not though. And so we can imagine like this example of like someone building like a, a tower, right? Like you can build a tower on a beach. And so sunlight begins as non-rival, but you make it rival when you build this really tall tower that we can measure blocks the sun for a while. And so like one tension I find in my own thinking is I'm okay if you're the first person on the island, I'm okay with you building that tower and blocking the sun so long as you're not blocking the sun for someone else's property because they're not even there. And then if someone moves next to you and they have the sun blocked, I'm sorry, the sun's blocked, they got there first. But with drugs, I feel the opposite way, being opposed to IP in that like the first person to a drug, I feel like it, it, I'm upset with them if they make it rival all of a sudden. Uh, but I wasn't upset with the hotel when they put their tower up when it became rival. So Justin, I don't know if you had any thoughts on this, but I thought it was kind of a weird example where like we're okay with first movers in physical domain, basically making things rival sometimes, like the person who builds their tower first and blocks the sunlight for future people, but we're not okay with it in the drug industry. Uh, the first mover suddenly making their drug rival by using the state granted but still so i don't know if you had any thoughts about why why that tension exists in my brain at least i don't know if it does in yours too but isn't it that it's not essentially like there isn't a rival in the in the first case even though it not it not yet rival yeah not yet but it there, makes it rival rest but yeah there isn't a rival. sure right um, with the first mover in the, yeah in the first mover in yeah. that case but that they're uh the nature of pharmaceutical manufacturing is that you are it is a it is a den of rivals sure uh, yeah I, I guess that could be it it's like the nature of like how likely you are to develop someone who's excluded from it there's no nothing necessary that requires someone to move next to you but almost certainly someone's now so no one has to enter your industry and compete against you but almost certainly they do and will so i guess that could be it all right, I might start to be convinced uh, that intellectual property is a intellectual or not intellectual, but uh, a cesspool of cronyism and maybe has uh, negatives that outweigh the positives of what it maybe used to serve 100 or 200 years ago. Yeah, we haven't even touched on like the cost percentage of GDP that's used in internet IP litigation, mm -hmm. right? Which I is, know it's astronomical. I've seen some enormous reports on that. Yeah, it's you crazy. Think about like, do you guys know who Aaron Schwartz was? Mm -hmm. You know, he, what did he invent? Um, the, he invented some really early part of like, like an antecedent to blogs or something like that. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, he famously got, he was trying to release all the information that, that's held by like JSTOR to the public. Oh, um, right. <laughs> and the argument for that is like, I don't, it's, it's, it's Reddit, right? Uh, Isn't that what he partly? Okay. I'll find out what it yeah, is. Um, something that alerts you. I can't remember what it is. Yeah. But um, so, and his argument was like, look, this is funded, but this is publicly funded universities, right? With this, right? <laughs> this information should be free to the public. And uh, I didn't think about it that way. Yeah. Our tax dollars basically helped to fund that. Yeah. And uh, he was arrested and faced an enormous amount of time and killed himself. So, I mean, there's the human cost. I mean, that's just one story, but like. Um, yeah. And there's countless stories of, you know, big business being able to just drop a lawsuit on the small business of intellectual and they can't defend themselves. Right. Yeah. It, it, is would, it would take a, a $50,000, yeah. you know, maybe sign up fee for a small uh, competitor to uh, try to defend itself against big business. Yeah, for the record, he did. He was the co-founder of Reddit, but there oh, were right. there were other things too. Mm. So could have been one of the other things that we think of. But yeah, yeah, no, that's yeah. For, for me, like I I look at like the organizations that benefit the most from intellectual property, and in my mind, when we're making the utilitarian case, I find it hard to believe that these organizations like Disney or 
you know, the giant pharmaceutical companies or the big technology companies, like they would be suddenly put out if they had to share their intellectual property with other people. I don't see the the story of the little guy rising up because intellectual property saved him as much. Like Russ said, maybe there actually was a time when that did happen. Right. Uh, I'm 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 open to that possibility because I, I again from the from just a strictly like what the results are. I'm not sure which way this pans out in terms of the benefit to society. I guess it probably depends on the person. But I tend to be opposed to intellectual property for that very reason, that I look at the people who are hardline for it, and I think, you're actually doing all right for yourself. So I'm not, like, super worried if that, like, right. Disney's going to lose gonna money you. if someone can use Steamboat Willie in a cartoon. Like, they've <laughs> locked him up for over 100 years, and, like, if Steamboat Willie gets out there, it's all going to fall apart. I just have a hard time buying these arguments by the, the pro-IP types that... Uh, you know, uh, AstraZeneca is going to be in big trouble if their drugs become public domain. I, well, I just okay, you're, you're bringing up that, that's a little different. That's a little different than a patent, like Steamboat Willie and stuff would be copyright. Yeah, it's all intellectual property. But yeah, I know. Would I know you, you abolish that though? Because I think I disagree with you there. Yeah, I, I get rid of it all at this point. That's my. Yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah, if you're blatantly using Steamboat Willie, who I don't even know who you're talking about, but I get, I get what it's you mean. It's a precursor to Mickey Mouse <laughs> made in the 1900s. Okay. Uh, that Disney you know, if you're creating your own content with our iPhone and putting it up there and it's getting, you're making tons of money off of free riding on the tail of Steamboat Willie's reputation that was built up over a number of years. I, I, but, but to me, that's a different topic than the patent topic where it's 17 years and then it can be copycatted, right? I mean... So the, the the drug goes generic or anybody can use it. So there's a That's, fixed time period. It's so funny because I think I like patents better than, what? yeah, yeah. Because like I like the limited timeline that to me, it's like at least it's only 17 years with something like, you know, locked up intellectual stuff. It's like, well, that's but like whatever. Steamboat Willie turned into something physical, right? Either on paper or, or cartoons or what. Uh, it's more tangible than what we're talking about maybe with the with patent rights. Well, I mean, you draw Steamboat Willie, but you can draw him in like different situations. Well, you can't because it's illegal. Yeah. Like uh, another funny example. You know, using the like, Coca-Cola logo, you're getting into all that. And yeah. I, I think that needs to stay. That's trademark. Yeah, trademarks and cool. copyrights. And I, I think that stuff needs to stay. So yeah. no, that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah, I, about out of I'm okay with all the intellectual property anything, but I also recognize that that's a, an, an out there position for most people. So yeah. I, I'd be happy to just get rid of the the silly stuff in, on pharmaceuticals. Yeah. So. Yeah. RSS feeds are what I was talking about. The shorts. Oh yeah. 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 That's oh, right. That's, yeah. that's a great example. Yeah. All right. Well, that looks like a good place to wrap. This has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa university. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Uh, please forward this along to some friends, family that you think might like to hear it. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.